0: Welcome to the Buddhist Centre Podcast. I'm Chandra Dasa, your usual host, although this week I am just interrupting before the episode gets underway. We're going to be hearing a recording made earlier this year from a live event we hosted on the Buddhist Centre Online with Bodhi Leela, Chair of the West London Buddhist Centre, in conversation with Lama Rod Owens, author of Love and Rage, The Path of Liberation Through Anger. A really timely conversation about diversity and Dharma work, Buddhist communities around the world, and a path of practice for everyone, leading to compassion and freedom. But I wanted first just to say, well, this is the end of our current season of podcasts we've moved over to that very modern podcast metaphor of seasons it's been a great run of 10 11 episodes and we'll be back in about five or six weeks time we may sneak in a couple of emergency episodes in between because we can't help ourselves but for now we're going to have a little break so we hope you've really enjoyed the conversations the voices the stories that you've heard if you're looking for something else to listen to while we're off air Well, there are 430-odd episodes preceding the one you're about to hear, so there's lots to listen to, including one with Lama Rod from a few years ago, a panel conversation from the Gen X Teachers Conference in North America. Do search for that. It was a really great roundtable conversation. You can also listen to our other podcast, which has come back recently, Buddhist Voices, longer-form witness testimony recordings from members of the Chratna Buddhist Order, talking about their long history of practice through the first 50 years of our community. Really fascinating, all sorts of different people from all sorts of different walks of life, finding their way to a Buddhist path and why it's meaningful in the 21st century. You can also check out Free Buddhist Audio's two podcasts, our sister site, Free Buddhist Audio, That's been going strong with podcasts for 15 years, something like that. Amazing collection of Dharma Talks, of course, and you can get a full Dharma Talk every week for free and three short clips, inspirational extracts around Buddhist themes also every week. That's the Dharma Bites podcast. Anyway, we'll put the links in the show notes for today so you can hear all of this. And as usual, if you enjoy what you hear, please do give us a good review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find this episode. We hope you have a great summer break, or winter break, depending on which hemisphere you're in, and we look forward to being with you again quite soon for a new set of voices and stories. But here is Bodilila with Lama from West London.
1: So a very big welcome to everybody to the West London <laughs> Buddhist Centre. And uh, it's so nice to see so many of you here for this very special occasion, welcoming Lama Rod Owens. So this is quite unusual. We don't often have teachers from other traditions coming into our centre. And I think that's kind of Mm -hmm. similar to quite a lot of other Buddhist organisations. But I just felt that a lot of what Lama Rod has been Mm -hmm. teaching and has been writing about in his books is just so helpful. And I found it incredibly helpful for my own practice And I know that there are people, particularly in the people of colour community, that have been finding his work very helpful. And I thought a lot of it is just relevant to anybody who's practising, actually, and that he goes places that often aren't talked about (laughs) <laughs> and they're quite scary and difficult to approach so particularly that area of rage and the, uh-huh. the love is fine but the rage <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but i think it's a very helpful book and he's got a lot of really practical things but mm-hmm. also a lot of very inspiring approaches i think mm-hmm. so i thought it'd be really nice to take advantage of roma being here One of the things I was really struck by was how much you talk about embodiment and how important it is to come into relationship with our bodies, how often we have these sort of wounded relationships with our bodies, and that that can be at the basis of Mm the ways that we treat others, the ways we treat them well.
2: Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I just think that, that the tragedy is that we have consented to how culture and society has created our bodies. And then we believe it. You know, we believe what people say about who and what we are and what our bodies are. You know, and then that creates this path of suffering. As we grow older, as we move through the life, through this life, there's this tremendous work that goes into coming back to the body, actually developing a real relationship to our body that isn't colored or informed by what other people are saying, but is definitely deeply informed by a direct, authentic relationship their bodies, which is based on sensation, like, how do I feel? What is the nature of this? What am I? Who am I? You know, what is this body? And why do I continually identify my body as a vessel of suffering? Why can it be a vessel of joy and pleasure? We have to understand that like, our relationship to body determines our consent to systems of oppression. When I began to reclaim relationship to my body, I began to disrupt the ways in which I've been told how to be in relationship to my body. I want to have ownership and agency to make decisions about my body. My body is no one else's business except for mine. But when we reclaim that, that agency through embodiment, which is just the work of bringing awareness back to the reality of the body, and developing this intimacy with the body, then I am reclaiming the power that systems have over my body. This doesn't mean that life is all gonna be fun. <laughs> you know? Because systems don't want us to have agency over our bodies. But when I do, I become uh, fugitive. There's a fugitivity here. I escape systems of oppression by reclaiming my body. Of course, there's always retaliation, but I can hold that. Because once I have agency over my body, then I'm actually able to practice in a way where I'm saying, you know what, whatever happens, happens, wherever comes, comes. Because I'm more than the body. I can't understand the depth of who I am if I don't actually come home to my body at some point. And if I have agency over my body, then I have agency to give my body away when I need to in order to benefit others. Not having it taken away without my consent. But anyway, that's a whole bunch of stuff to a very simple question <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, you're talking about that's not all of you, is it? I think one of the things that I also really appreciate is that you embrace all the different identities you yeah. have without getting caught up or identified in a way that just actually owning all those different yeah. bits. And some of those may be things like being queer or mm-hmm. cisgender or black. Uh-huh. And some of them may be the fact that you're uh-huh. a teacher or that you're this or yeah. you're that. How hard it is sometimes for us to yeah. own the different parts of ourselves, and how we sometimes have shame about different parts of ourselves. And you've clearly done the work, and you're know, like encouraging us to do the mm-hmm. work. And that you have a sort of much more complex view. And I think there's that tendency to think of I'm this, you're
2: that. I think when you mention the view, I think that's important because we have to develop an actual, authentic view of what's happening. You know what's really going on. So there are two views. There's the relative view and the absolute view. And we have to bring both of those views together. And we're taught that in the Heart Sutra. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form. But we have to bring those extreme teachings together and live in the middle. And living in the middle of those teachings, when those teachings collide, the absolute and the relative collide, it's not something you can articulate. Like, I can't intellectually tell you and a talk, what it feels like to live at the intersection of form and emptiness. But I can feel it. It's a disruption. And that disruption, I'm able to say I am, and I'm able to say I'm not, together. In my mind, it's like they have to be said at the same time. And there's a space that opens where I can be Black and queer and fat and radical, right? And I can say, and that's not who I am either. (laughs) You know, I can be black, but I'm not black. That doesn't make me less black, but nor does that make me, mean I'm bypassing the relative expression of identity. It means that like, I'm not that, but I am, right? So like I said, you can't explain it, but you live it. You feel it. People will feel that disruption because we were rather the ego survives our sense of self, survives by solidifying everything around it. The ego has to know what you are for it to know what it is or what I am. So when you're living in this disruptive period, you're gonna actually upset people because people want you to be something. But when you refuse to be that because you no longer have agency to be anything, you just are. But there are consequences to that. We retaliate against people make us uncomfortable a bunch of people get together and retaliate against other people we call that systematic violence when people continue to do that over a long period of time we call that anything i mean you call it culture sometimes you call it society sometimes you call it community where community becomes systematic violence and we have to disrupt that too
1: Clearly, you did a lot of work exploring your own issues around anger and rage and history, and I think probably everybody has their own history Mm. around that. And Mm -hmm. some of that is around our personal lives, some of it's family, some of it's coming from society, and some of the things that we've experienced. I find it quite interesting that it is such a difficult area for all of us, and then we do all this practice around trying to transform ill will and hatred. And I think there can be a kind of assumption that anger and rage are ill will and hatred, But to me, they're very separate. And Mm -hmm. that energy, you you talk about sometimes that energy being quite helpful. I'm very aware that we have all these logical figures in Mm -hmm. Buddhism. So I'm just wondering Mm -hmm. how you practice
2: around all of that. For me, anger is about being hurt. It's about feeling the offense and wanting to take care of myself but not knowing how to. So there's a tension that arises between getting hurt and wanting to take care of ourselves. And we get wrapped up in the tension and we start reacting to it. And that's the experience of anger. That I've been hurt, but I don't know how to take care of that hurt. So I'm going to whoop your ass instead. Well, I'd never did that, actually. My superhuman ability is passive aggressiveness, <laughs> you know? But that was a functional expression of anger because that's what kept me safe because I can't express anger where I'm from, and also here, you know, because my anger is red is quite dangerous. If I raise my voice, I put my life in danger. I am policed. Anger is policed. Queer anger is policed because anger becomes a mirror reflecting back to people how they're complicit in the violence that I experience. But even further than that, my anger reminds people that they have bought into identities that are only there because of the systematic oppression of other people. You know, it's a hard thing to hear, (laughs) right? When like you think you're normal, but your normality is actually coming at the expense of large groups of people, at the detriment of a lot of people. But that's not the same thing as hate. Like this is where we have to like differentiate all of this. So when I'm experiencing anger, and anger is an experience, I am not angry. I'm not sad. I am experiencing this. This is an experience. And we have to disrupt that self-identification. My suffering is a cloud passing through the sky, or sometimes many clouds (laughs) passing through the sky, but the sun is always there. I may not be able to see it, but the sun is there. That's our nature, that's our Buddha nature. Going back to anger, anger is my hurt, and I can actually identify someone who's at the root of that hurt. Like you hurt me, absolutely. But when I start hating you, my hate says you've hurt me and you don't deserve to have access to the resources that you need to be well and that hate is what drives the violence that we begin to see in the world like you don't deserve you've done something to me and you don't deserve to be happy anymore you deserve actually to hurt as much as i do but when i'm angry it's just like no you've hurt me but you still deserve to be happy and we may go into a process of accountability and reconciliation and restorative justice. And this is because I want you to be happy. But you also have to understand the hurt that you've created, because that's a block to your experience of happiness. But when I hate, hate is really easy. It's too easy. Hate says that like, actually, you're not human. When we feel objectified, we become receptacles of violence. Really easily, you know, that drives so many systems of violence, particularly racism and transphobia and so forth, where like people become objects, right? And I see that so much happening in the world. But I also see people losing the capacity to be with their own hurt. And that disrupts the ways in which we're able to practice empathy. Without this, empathy is the key to humanizing people, to seeing people as me, reflections of me, and them as reflections. So to see people as reflections of me, I have to maintain that even though I hurt, even though I am surviving violence from people, I have to continue to see them as people. When I stop seeing people as people or seeing people as human, that says more about me and my capacity. And it says that I need to engage in deep healing and transformational work.
1: And I think that comes through very clearly in your book about mm-hmm. the need to do that transformational work, to do the healing of the woundedness, mm-hmm. and the grief, in order to liberate ourselves from mm-hmm. the anger and the rage. I heard you giving a podcast and you were talking about what drew you to Buddhism was wanting liberation. Yeah,
2: I felt like Buddhists were having a lot of fun <laughs> as well. I was mistaken. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my fault. <laughs> Buddhism was the first time liberation was offered to me. And I said, yes, that's it. It was more than social liberation, which was what I was doing. I was trying to get free socially. I was trying to disrupt racism and everything, right? But Buddhism came along and said, you know what? There's more going on. You know, there's the liberation of the social, but there's also the liberation of the heart, the liberation of the mind. There's the liberation of phenomenal reality, And that's what Vajrayana Buddhism, Tantric Buddhism, is actually asking us to do, to liberate everything. Everything has to be liberated. And I was like, great. (laughs) Like, let's do it. But when you sign up to that kind of liberation work, you're signing up to a complete transformation of everything. Like, you will have to give up shit. I had to give up everything. I gave up my name for a period. I gave up everything that I owned. I gave up the possibility of maybe having the relationships with family and loved ones ever again. That's how serious I was. You know, and I think this is really important to point out: is that some of us come into Dharma and Buddhism, and we're actually not serious about liberation, but we're real serious about comfort. That's why we're so confused. That's why so many of us are having conflicts in our sanghas and spiritual communities because some of us. We're talking about different things. When we say liberation, some of us are trying to get everything free. The rest of us, when we say liberation, we're like, you know, I'm just trying to be comfortable. I'm trying to have my shit, you know? And I'm just like, I'm just trying to get through life. That's not what Buddhism is trying to do. That's not the project of Dharma. The project of Dharma is not about getting comfortable, it's about getting free. Getting free doesn't mean you're gonna be comfortable. Getting free means that you're going to start centering discomfort. You're going to start centering struggle. But as you center struggle and discomfort, you're also awakening the reality of space. Space holds everything. So as we move deeper into the work of liberation, as we move deeper into the work of undoing suffering, we're also widening the space in and around everything that we experience. So that's the caveat here. I'm not saying that it's going to be dull and overwhelming and intense, but you're going to get space and space is going to give us the fluidity and the movements to hold everything, not just the suffering and the pain and the sadness, but also the joy, the happiness, the gratitude, the bliss, right? The bliss and joy and gratitude hold the intensity of the suffering of the trauma, right? And we have to get to that balance. But you can't center comfort in this. You can't be working for happiness either. Don't do this and say, you know, I just want to be happy. It's the same thing as comfort. It's not going to get you anywhere. It's limiting. Happiness is limiting. You want to go to the end, right, to the very end, to the liberation, to the disruption of dualism, into the nature of things itself. And you will have to give up everything. And who's ready to do that? If I were at the beginning of my path and someone would have came to me and said, are you ready to get free? I would be like, sure. Then you start the work and you're like, oh, shit, I have to give up everything. I have to even give up the desire to get free. At the threshold of ultimate liberation, when you're at the final stage, you have to give up wanting to get free. Isn't that intense? I also want to say that we're all at different points in the path, that this may not be your life. This lifetime may not be the life that you go to the end, but you're creating the causes and conditions to get there. You do what you can. You do what you can, and you're creating the conditions to do more in the future. But sometimes we just limit ourselves because we're afraid. We don't even know what freedom is. And you're asking me to do that. You know, again, the ego, the ego, the ego is like, whoa, we're not going to survive this. How can you go to the edge and jump off and know that that's exactly what you should be doing, that you're going to get caught. This is what's being called for now, because we're at this point where like, happiness and comfort is actually destroying the planet. Mm-hmm. Our pursuit of happiness and comfort, the consumerism, the overconsumption, the ecosystem is disrupting the way of living. So like, How do we move beyond manipulating and abusing materialism to go into these spaces that just need to be cared for, that don't need to be bypassed or attempted to be filled up with stuff? But to go and to take care of the brokenheartedness, to go and take care of the whiteness, to go and take care of the fear and the trauma, how do we go and just do that without our phones, without our cars, without social media, and even more, I know this is really tragic, to do this work and not be celebrated, (laughs) to do this work and not have something to post on social media, to do this work and sometimes be blamed because you're doing something different and apparently you're the problem if you could just like be happy with what you have instead of wanting more then we would all be cool you're creating disruption wanting to be free we just want to sit together and be quiet and be happy and comfortable but you have to walk in and talk about freedom i don't know if many of you read sarah ahmed she's a british academic she talks about blame and she says that when you point the problem out, you become the problem. So you walk into the space and say, you know what, we're not actually doing liberation work. Guess what? You become the problem. (laughs) And we have to hold that. Anyway, I know you have more questions. (laughs) I don't want to, you know.
1: No, I'm thinking that all of the blame, the shame and things like that. And fear. I mean, certainly I did so much fear and worked with so much fear and I can see it underlying all the reasons why I step back you know, even mm-hmm. when I have breakthroughs yeah. in my practice, you know, then that yeah. can be scary. But I think one mm-hmm. of the things that I really liked mm-hmm. is that the way that you call yourself a bad Buddhist. <laughs> because I think for me, I've often wanted to sort of like <laughs> not be seen as a bad Buddhist. You know, when I was invited to join communities community, I thought, oh, well, I can't join the community because then they'd see what bad Buddhist I am. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people are sort of scared yeah. to be themselves and own different yes. parts of themselves and yes. follow their dreams because they want to fit in with their particular yeah. peer group yeah. or sangha. Or-
2: I'm not interested in fitting in anymore right? I'm interested in being myself. I think, you know, we talk about bad Buddhists. For me, I had to get to this place where I had to stop performing what my teachers and what my sanghas were asking me to perform. And I had to choose myself. Like, I had to choose blackness. I had to choose queerness. I had to choose fatness. I'm not Tibetan. I'm trained in the system, right? My teachers are Tibetan and were Tibetan, but I'm not Tibetan. Like, who am I? How Can we develop the courage to allow the dharma, the truth, to emerge through our bodies, through our identities, instead of just doing what our teachers did? I'm not interested in being in community where I'm told to be like everyone else and to follow this kind of hierarchy because that's called a cult. As a survivor of a cult, you know, I was in a cult. My monastery is considered a cult after we had our own disclosure around sexual misconduct. Like it was revealed that, oh, like you actually adhere to the structure, you know, I was like, wait, I'm, I don't join cults, <laughs> but I was definitely in one. So a person who's a member of a cult is not, in the moment, an expert on a cult. <laughs> Just so you know that. So like, I had to learn that the hard way. You know, when people were coming to me and saying, Rod, you know, what are you doing? It's like, what are you talking about? Then I stepped outside of it and I was like, oh, right. You know, I'm not allowed to be myself. I'm not allowed to ask questions. If I ask questions, I'm considered a disruptor all these things just started coming about and so being a bad buddhist really is just doing buddhism for real (laughs) that's it it's not about fitting in it's about saying that liberation is the point liberation is what i'm doing and i have to commit to that dharma isn't this set thing that has to be replicated generation to generation dharma becomes whatever is being expressed in the moment When we're expressing compassion and wisdom and reducing violence, that's dharma. It doesn't mean I have to look like you. It doesn't mean I have to wear robes. It doesn't mean I have to take on a spiritual name. It means that I'm committed to the reduction of violence on the path to getting free. And so we can show up any way that we want. We can even be difficult. I'm sure that's a relief for some of you. Being meek and mild and agreeable isn't a part of dharma. This is a part of people wanting themselves to be comfortable and thus policing you. So you settle down and stop reminding them that they're trying to be comfortable. I can be difficult. I can be sassy. You know, I can be promiscuous. As long as it's framed within a context of reducing harm, of practicing compassion, we can have a bunch of sex and still be compassionate. And we can skillfully start relating to things in the world in a way that we don't have to like renounce it. We point that out because everyone has to choose the most skillful way for them to get free. So it's this cookie cutter approach. It's not working out as much as it should. I'm not saying that we can't model ourselves after great practitioners and after spiritual friends because we can, but we have to, at the end of the day, ask ourselves, is this appropriate for me? Is this helping me get free? There are things that other people do that I'm like, oh, I can't do that, (laughs) you know, but then things that I do that people look at me and go, whoa, are you sure you're a Buddhist? (laughs) You know, this is really complex and nuanced, but being a Buddhist doesn't mean that you stop having fun, which a teacher of mine gave me that teaching years ago at the very beginning of my path. And this teacher looked at me and said, Rod, you're too serious right now. Can you believe that? (laughs) Can you believe someone told me to have fun? But I know what the tightness feels like. And again, the middle way that we're talking about isn't about being too tight. It's not about being too loose. It's about finding what's appropriate for us to open the door to liberation. And what excites me is how many different ways we can show up and still get free. Isn't that exciting? That's called inclusivity. (laughs) (laughs) I'm the diversity person now. (laughs)
1: I mean, there isn't really such a thing as a Buddhist, there's just people practicing the Dharma and the teachings, and That's we right. don't have the Buddha's guidance about what mm-hmm. is the Dharma, and then yeah. practice it and see what the effects are. Yeah, exactly. And does it lead you towards freedom and generosity and kindness and all those qualities?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we can bullshit ourselves. We can trick ourselves and say, well, I am free, but we need community. So this is why community is so important. I know I was at a point in my life where I was like, fuck this community stuff. Like, y'all get on my nerves. Like, I'm tired. Like, all these opinions. And, like, I'm tired of showing up to stuff. I just want to practice. So I went through that. You know, I was just really exhausted about being in a community. But community is imperative. And it's also dangerous. And welcome to practice. <laughs> you know? It's both. I've survived survivors in the word I want to say I've survived really dangerous, unhealthy groups and I have thrived in really amazing communities. And it's been quite balanced. And I can't avoid the hurts being in community. You know, this is why my personal practice is also important because I want to discern what's really liberatory. I want to offer feedback to others around me and saying, you know what, what you're doing isn't helpful for my liberation.
1: I suppose the danger there is that we can just go with our preferences and what feels comfortable to
2: us, and mistake that as yeah, you go to what feels good, you know. But I do that. I go with what feels good. But when I say good, I mean, does this actually challenge me? Does it disrupt me? And but in that disruption, does it actually help me to expand and open? Does it open my heart, or does it close it? Does it make me resentful? I think we should be in uncomfortable communities. That's what sanghas should be, uncomfortable. But they shouldn't be the kind of discomfort that closes us, that traumatizes us. We should be challenged in community to open, to expand, to evolve. We don't grow in comfort. We grow in discomfort. But there should be a healthy balance of that in spiritual community. I just don't need to walk into a space and just be traumatized. But I need to walk into a space where people are holding me accountable, where people are concerned about my practice, you know, where people worry about me if I'm not around. Like, that's where I want to be. And I want to feel like I can just show up and just be myself. You know, I'm not trying to bust into a space and just, like, lose it. (laughs) You know, that's one thing, right? But when I'm talking about this basic Capacity just to enter into a space and not be focused on because of my appearance, because of the color of my skin, because of whatever, you know, where I'm not singled out and made to be special. You know, I just want to show up and have people see me and greet me and, you know, and hold me in love and concern. How are you? How are you? This radical welcoming. You know, we shouldn't have to work so hard. The practice is already work. (laughs) Like sitting on the cushion, that's already work. Being with our minds, being with our bodies is already work. But I shouldn't have to work to walk into the space and not feel as if I am the recipient of attention and aggression because I don't look like everyone else. It shouldn't be special that a black man walks into a space. You shouldn't get excited, (laughs) you know, and make them the diversity officer. (laughs) for (laughs) the (laughs) right. As we tend to do, oh, like you came, therefore you can bring others. (laughs) And you're like, none of my friends want to be here.
1: (laughs) So a question Mm -hmm. on how to navigate when there's people that we feel the rage towards and uh, they may have behaved in a way that, uh, yeah. So how do we have Mm -hmm. compassion towards ourselves and others and still tend to Mm -hmm. work with the rage?
2: Well, I think first, I mean, this is going to be kind of tricky. But we should allow ourselves to be pissed off with people. Like, we shouldn't police that. This is like be. like, I'm pissed off with you. Or rather, you know, of course, I am experiencing anger because (laughs) of something you've done or said. No, but really in the moment, it's like, I'm going to be pissed off with you because this is bullshit. So in that moment, if you can allow that to happen, then you have some space to go back and to say, okay, but what do I need right now in this moment? Because you're not trying to like monitor that anymore. But if you go back and ask yourself what you need, then you're not reacting to that anger and doing something that will create more harm, like trying to kick people's ass. So you go back, you take care of yourself. You say, what do I need right now? Because I am actually the most important person right now. Because if I don't take care of myself and I'm going to do something, that's not going to be good. How do I actually relate to this now? And what are the boundaries that I need to erect? Like we won't escape the impact of systematic abuse and, and violence. This is not the case, but what I can do is strategize around the ways in which I experience systematic abuse by focusing on caring for myself and caring for other people who may experience the same kind of abuse that I do or impact that I do. Maintaining my humanity is key to maintaining other people's humanity. When I start thinking that you don't deserve resources you don't deserve to be happy you don't deserve anything that's dangerous for me when we start labeling people evil you just cut yourself off you're like when someone's evil there's no way they can be human and so that's a dangerous place for all of us to be and we've seen this over and over again you know they're not inherently evil unless they're a demon if i believe that people are awakened then i have to see their actions as an expression of delusion Like, if they knew what was really happening, if they knew who they really were, they wouldn't be doing this. If they knew who they were, they wouldn't know who I was. So the compassion arises from that. It's like, if you could only figure out who you were, then we wouldn't be having this issue. There wouldn't be the system. There wouldn't be whatever we're working with. That compassion for me is just the experience of brokenheartedness. I keep my heart open and understand that, like, a lot of people don't get it. Like, you're doing this because you don't get it. I'm not saying that I get it 100%, but I'm saying I'm a little closer to that realization. And what is my responsibility then? So I would say that my responsibility would be to embody that realization through compassion. By saying, yeah, I get it. Like, you don't know who you are. You don't know who I am. That doesn't mean that you get to keep doing whatever you want. That's a response to anger, to trauma that becomes compassion informed. I love you. I love myself. And because I love both of us, I have to disrupt this violence. And therefore, I choose how I'm going to do that. I don't choose that because I want that person to hurt as much as I do. Again, that's kind of hate. You know, I choose disruptive things because I want both of us to be free. And that's a hard road, but that's the only road if you're intending to get free. And it's a burden. This isn't fair. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you have to get rid of that idea that everything is going to work out fairly. It doesn't. Some of us work really hard, but at the end of the day, we're all going to work equally. As we get closer and closer to liberation, we all have to go through the same process of transforming delusion into clarity. So I may not get it right in this life, but like if karma works itself out through work, then I'm going to get there. I get to this life where I'm like, okay, I have to actually let go of delusion. I have to figure out who I am.
1: It's kind of related whether or not you see some people's hatred as projections and also Mm -hmm. about it being a huge risk to actually bring awareness to
2: that. So do we see someone's hatred towards us as being like a result of their own delusion? You know? Yes. Because if they knew, then they wouldn't be doing that. If I could connect to my innate awakened nature or have some sense of it, then Everything transforms. I don't have to be enlightened to transform. I just have to have a sense, like I have to connect to it, even just for a second. And I say, oh, that's what's happening. That's what's happening. Okay, if I'm this, everyone else is this too. But a lot of this in a really relative way, you know, when I'm moving through the world in relationship with people, talking with people, it's a lot of deep insecurity. That deep insecurity comes from not knowing who you are. It comes from buying in to the way in which society has created you and the way you've bought into it. You start reclaiming the narrative for yourself. You Reclaim the narrative through the practices, the loving kindness meta. Like I deserve to be free. I deserve to be happy. I deserve to be safe. I deserve to have the resources that I need to be well. That has to be a deepest belief that you can hold, which is a belief that we're not taught. Many of us aren't. And that's not the narrative that we get. Many of the narratives that I've gotten has been like, oh, you don't deserve this. You don't have a right to this. You only got this because someone took pity on you. Not because I inherently deserve it, because I'm a person. Like, I'm a human. I deserve to have resources to be well. How do we, as you said, cultivate the practice of actually being concerned with how people are, you know, and asking that? I think the first step is actually being willing to hold what people give you. Like, when someone asks you, how are you? And if you don't want to deal with it, you're like, I'm fine. I'm okay. I'm good. Right, and we all, I do that. Maybe I don't want to deal or articulate how I'm feeling or I believe that the person who's asked me actually doesn't give a shit, it's just a courtesy. You know, this is what we do. It's an etiquette. It's like, how are you? You don't, you know, you're not waiting around (laughs) to to hear the heartbreak. You're just like, you're just in passing. Like, I just need to hear good so I can get to the next thing. But, you know, we live in these cultures, these societies where we're not being trained to hold each other's heartbrokenness. Because we're not being trained to hold our own. So, like, I'm not that concerned with how you are, you know, because I can't even show up for myself. You know, how can I show up for you? But in our relationships, it's not that we have to start doing this practice with everyone, but we start doing it with people that we love and care about. In our circles, we have check-ins with each other. Like, how are you? You create the space for people to be really honest and vulnerable. That trains you to just be out in the world and just ask people, like, how are you? And when I do that, I'm always ready for what people offer me. You know, if I don't want to deal with it, I do not ask you. I've had experiences where people just kind of let loose. I have that kind of energy with people, but I'm there to hold it. And if I can't hold it, I let them know. It's like, yeah, you know, I really don't have the space right now, but I care about you. And I hope that you get the resources that you need to be well right now, which is also really powerful. We're just going around and saying, you know, I hope you get what you need. But there's a lot of trauma there. I think there's a lot of trauma from surviving different groups, systems, situations where we feel like people or the world just doesn't care. They don't care how we feel. They look at us and say, oh, you know, we get it. Assumption is easy. It doesn't take a lot of effort. You know, I know that it's a huge issue in a class-based society, right? But as an individual practitioner, we have to challenge ourselves to do a little more, to say, you know what, this is what I'm thinking, but let me cut through the thinking and get to something deeper, which is really getting to our own hearts and asking ourselves, how are we? You know, how am I? Start with that. <laughs> you know, this isn't the first country I've been to since the pandemic, but when I'm in different places, I just feel the exhaustion. People are just exhausted, they're tired, they're overwhelmed. We were before the pandemic, I mean, we certainly are now. And how do we hold the massive amount of grief that has arisen for all of us? I've lost people that I've loved in the pandemic to COVID, but it's, it's more than just losing people, it's losing a way of life. It's confronting not just pandemic, but climate instability and racial injustice and war. Not that this is just beginning, it's just things that have been going on, but now we can't avoid it anymore. And it's overwhelming. And what do we do? Because nothing's going away until we do work. So I'm really concerned with collective grief How do we collectively grieve? How do we individually grieve? How do we care about each other's grief without feeling overwhelmed by it? How can we stop being afraid of each other's grief? I mean, this is the path forward, right? We're in a moment of deep transformation in this world. I do believe we all get through it. This isn't the end, but it's the end of something. And I think there's something brand new awakening, but we're leading that people who are concerned with these questions, who are asking these questions, we're leading this. And we have to kind of stick to it. Our practice is holding the world together. Right now, there are those of us who are doing massive amounts of emotional labor for a lot of people. And we're holding people together. We're saving people's lives. And as you do that, I want you to ask yourself, what do I need? And I want you to start calling into your practice what you need. If you need more love, ask for more love. If you need more rest, ask for more rest. If you need more boundaries, ask for more boundaries. You're not going to get what you need until you ask for it. Ask for what you need. This is a time of miracles. There's something amazing and fantastic happening, but we have to process the suffering first, and we'll get through it so we keep on we keep doing it i want to run away every day i just don't want to get out of bed sometimes i just like i just want to watch netflix i just want, <laughs> i just want to give up sometimes i'm like did i sign up for this is this is what being a bodhisattva is because i need like the other program i need like <laughs> like what's the beginning level again because like this can't be <laughs> like i haven't trained for this you know but I just keep going. I just wake up and say, you know what? I'm going to choose practice. I'm going to choose awareness. I'm going to choose compassion. Compassion is the key right now. I have to stay in relationship to my pain and the pain of the world. And I have to open. I have to call in my resources. I have to surrender to the earth. I have to rely on the deities, whatever, whomever, or whatever your resources are, hold them close. Call them in right now. We have to start believing in something more than we can see because there are energies around us waiting to be tapped. I am saddened. I experience (laughs) sadness when people don't trust the practice. It can be mindfulness. It could be deity practice. It doesn't matter. Just trust it. Let the practice work because it does. I'm not doing shit, but my practice is. The compassion is. And that becomes the light through the darkness. I know some of you are tired. And when you feel really tired and overwhelmed and exhausted, I want you to say, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one. When you feel isolated, always say that. That is our doorway into compassion. I am not the only one right now. And there are countless beings working to save this world. And again, these are beings that you won't see on social media. They're not going to get documentaries made <laughs> about them. There aren't books about people doing really serious work, but they are. Invisible work, silent work, but profound, intense work. I have this new Dharma theory, this idea of about abundance. The world is actually abundance. How do I connect to that? And the abundance is not about materialism. It's not about stuff. It's about experience. There's space that I can connect to. And that actually helps me to move the world in really generous, open, fearless, but also fierce way. But when I'm closing down and buying into this illusion that there's never enough, there's not enough love, there's not enough compassion, there's not enough joy, so I have to hold on to it because I can't give it away or I won't have enough for me. That actually keeps us trapped in this illusion that keeps us from getting free. This is why we have practices like sympathetic joy, where it's like, I experience something great, and I give it away. And if you do that, you will realize that your capacity to experience joy, for instance, is deepened, because you realize that you are joy. But I keep choosing the pain. But if I just get into the joy, the joy begins to hold the pain. The pain doesn't disappear, but it begins to hold. We need things to hold us. We need joy to hold the pain and suffering. It's not supposed to be so brutal. Yes, we all, we do survive really intense things, absolutely. But that doesn't mean that that contributes to suffering. Suffering is something that we can disrupt. Pain isn't. We're going to experience pain. But we don't have to experience suffering. That's what dharma teaches us. Suffering is a choice. And when I came into dharma, that was the thing that hooked me. Not just the liberation, but I'm choosing suffering. And I was like, no way. But we do choose suffering because that's who we think we are. Because we form certain identities around the suffering. You know, but we also form identities around pleasure. And we have to cut through all of it and say, who am I? And to see that all of this is just an experience of my ultimate nature. Who am I? I'm free. I'm space. I'm empty. But I'm still in the world. compassion keeps us here. I know the ultimate stuff is what we like to skip to. Well, I don't see race. I don't see class. But that's not the work. Just sitting around and saying, you know, everything's empty and ultimate. That's just easy. And that doesn't get you anywhere. That's just the way we bullshit ourselves. And then at the end of the day, we realize we didn't get anywhere. When you come to die, when I say at the end of the day, in this context, I mean, when you are dying, you will see the fruition of your practice and you will know what you did and didn't do because death does not lie. So therefore, we create the causes and conditions to do real, authentic work and bring in the resources that keep us accountable. And you know what to do. This is the thing, like, no one's confused here. Because my mom used to say, you know exactly what to do, you just don't want to do it. (laughs) you're looking for an easier way to do this, there's no easier way to do this. So you're like, Well I'm a Buddha, so I should be enlightened. That's great, but you have to earn that realization again because it slips. That's why we're here. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Yeah.